You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in Psalm 110 tonight. Let's just get straight into the Word of God this evening. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray now that as we turn our hearts and our minds, Lord, to your Word, that you would reveal to us your Son, that you would show us all the wondrous things contained within it. Give us just a bigger, greater, more majestic picture of Jesus, we pray, in his name and for his sake. Amen. So we are still going through the Psalms, and we are up to Psalm 110. I'm hoping to do Psalm 110 and 111. Disclaimer, it depends how carried away I get in Psalm 110. It's such a full psalm, but I'm hoping we'll get through both of them tonight. They're quite short. So Psalm 110 covers some massive theological themes. Out of all the psalms that are classed as messianic psalms, psalms that teach about Jesus Christ, this is probably one of the ones that is known as the chief of the messianic psalms and unlike a lot of the psalms that give us pictures of the lord as a shepherd and all these other imagery that we're more familiar with the image we get of messiah in this psalm is of a messianic priestly warrior king and it's quite an impressive picture we get of the lord usually when we think of the messiah we think of the great act of priestly service that he gave offering himself in sacrificial love But here we have a conquering warrior king, and we need to hold and understand both of these pictures of the Messiah because they are one and the same. This is exactly who he is. And this psalm gives us a glimpse into this, and we also see how this will actually play out in the future. And I find this psalm absolutely fascinating. We will be jumping around a little bit in the Bible to get a bigger picture of this. There is a reason why this is the most quoted psalm In the New Testament, in fact, Psalm 110, just to show how important it is. So let's jump straight in and just read the first few verses. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. So it starts off with that familiar declaration, not so familiar for the Psalms, more familiar for the prophets. The Lord says, often this will be translated in the Bible, thus saith the Lord, or thus declares the Lord. That's the same phrase, and it's usually characteristic of prophetic literature. So this immediately tells us that as we enter this Psalm, we are dealing with a prophetic oracle. So it says, the Lord says to my Lord, and this is an unusual phrase, and this is why this psalm is considered to be messianic, much like in Psalm 2, this is related to Psalm 2, do you remember when we stood right back at the book of the beginning, we looked at Psalm 2 and we were treated to a very unusual conversation between the members of the Godhead, and that is exactly the same that we have going on here, a glimpse of a conversation between the first and second persons of the Godhead. Who was David's Lord? One who was greater than he, who was greater than Solomon from the Davidic line that we read about. It It is the Messiah. This is who it's getting at here. And this is not just us making a Christian interpretation. This is actually Jesus who gives us this interpretation of this Psalms. And I want you to turn to Matthew 22 with me, please. I'm going to look at a couple of texts. I want you to see how uh, pivotal this Psalm is in early apostolic preaching and also in the life of Jesus in the Gospels here. Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46, we see Jesus interpret and use this psalm for us in a dispute with the Pharisees. 
Matthew 22:41 says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hands until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day ask him another question. And that kind of settles the argument about the interpretation of this psalm. We see Jesus here basically making the point, if David called him Lord, then he is greater than David. He is greater than David himself. In fact, we see this same theme of this Messiah figure here being explained from this text. Not only in the words of Jesus here, we see it also in the first sermon ever preached by the church. Now, if we say that the church was formed on, in Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost, and then the first sermon was Peter's Pentecost sermon, you'll notice, and we're going to turn there now, Acts chapter 2, please, 29, you'll notice that he, again, uses this exact psalm in the first sermon ever preached in the church. And I think these two facts alone, that Jesus used this psalm to make his point, and Peter uses this psalm in his first sermon to make a point about the deity of the Messiah, is pivotal. Let's read. I'm going to read the whole bit of text here from 29 down. It says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he had poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So again here, we see a very explicit interpretation that the one in the psalm reference, the Lord said to my Lord, is speaking of the Messiah who is identified with the risen Lord Jesus Christ here, also as God. We also see the Apostle Paul quoting this in 1 Corinthians 15. He quotes from this verse. I won't, we won't read all of these. The author to the book of Hebrews, you might remember, spends quite a few chapters going over this bit of psalm. I'm emphasising this because I want you to get a feeling for just quite how important this psalm was for apostolic preaching. There is not many psalms that are picked up by both Jesus, by Paul, by Peter and the anonymous author to Hebrews, all making the same point. Uh, it's a very important psalm. Obviously, it's making the point about the deity of the Messiah, but it's also doing it using a psalm that contextually speaks of a warrior king Messiah. And that means it was actually quite central to their preaching, this concept. And as you read the Bible, yes, we see obviously the cross, we glory in the cross, we love the cross and the resurrection emphasised. But one of the things that we maybe don't emphasise or have central in our preaching is this concept of the warrior king Messiah. 
But as you read through the Bible, both old and new, you will find that this theme keeps coming up again and again and again. Now, whether it's references to this psalm, more often it's the pattern that this psalm is going to outline for us that matches what we find in the prophets, that matches what Jesus gives us in the Olivet Discourse, and matches the book of Revelation. We'll see this as we go through. It's fascinating. So he says, sit at my right hand. Let's go, go back to the psalm now. Sit at my right hand. Now, the right hand, obviously, that we know throughout the Bible is an exalted place of honor. You remember in Philippians, it says, for this reason also, God highly exalted him. The one who humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, he was highly exalted and placed at the right hand of the Father. It says, until, I was placed there until, and this is again one of these important words in the scriptures, it seems that after the Messiah ascended to the right hand of the Father, there was somewhat of a waiting game, if we could call it that. Now that's not to say he was inactive, we know there was intercessory work that he was doing, but there is a waiting game in relation to his return, and this is extremely important for Christian theology. You see, this is one of the reasons why we have confidence in the second coming. This doctrine that often causes so much controversy in the church is pivotal to apostolic preaching, it's pivotal to our full understanding of a biblical worldview, and it is actually connected very much to the first coming, particularly in this verse here. He ascended until, and then he descends again, and we're going to see what that is all about. And it gives us a reason. It says he sits at my right hand until, and then it says, I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this is uh, symbolic language, obviously very common to the ancient Near East. And it's picturing, of course, a defeated foe that lowers himself and acts in that very humble position under the person who has had victory over them. It gives a good picture of what actually is going to happen when Jesus descends, when that until is reached, when it reached its fullness and then it all happens. So let me summarize what we learn just from this first verse. We have a king, a messiah, who is exalted. He is exalted to the supreme place of honor in the throne room of God, and there he is waiting final victory over these enemies who will become his footstool. Now, there is really no one else that this could be talking about except Jesus Christ, except the messiah of the scriptures. Now let's look at verse 2 and 3, please. The Lord will stretch forth his strong scepter from Zion, saying... Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. The scepter from Zion. A scepter is a symbol of kingly authority. We still see earthly kings who have scepters, don't we, today? That is basically what it is. Throughout Christendom, Western Europe, they would often have scepters that would have a globe on top of them with a cross on top of them. And that was to symbolize that they were kings under the king of kings who had complete dominance over the entire globe. The scepter was where they get this from. But this is the king's scepter, the true king's scepter, speaking of his authority. And it speaks of the time when this waiting that we talked about is over, and then the warrior king descends to claim his territory from the enemy. And it says he will rule from Zion. And this speaks of the future center of the messianic kingdom. And make no mistake about it, It says very clearly, the king will rule from Zion. And let me say it even more frankly. If your understanding of the gospel does not end up with a Jewish king, Messiah, ruling from Zion, then you are missing the final part of the story. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying 
you're not saved, I'm not saying you don't understand salvation by grace. I'm just saying there is an important part of the picture that is talked about a lot in the Bible that you have not fully understood. And it says, from Zion, his reign will extend to the entire earth. We find this pattern in many scriptures. Isaiah chapter 2 is one of the chief ones. And it is absolutely consistent with the message of the minor and major prophets all throughout the Old Testament. It says, your people will volunteer freely. It's kind of an unusual phrase that the last half of verse 3 caused people a lot of trouble. It's very hard to translate. But the idea of this is that the soldiers of this messianic priest king are also wearing priestly garments and they are willing servants, willing soldiers of the king. There is no forced conscription in his army. There are no mercenaries like most of the armies of the world at this time. People who are serving the Lord, they serve voluntarily, willingly, and they do it in service of him. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, something sworn by the Lord really is an absolute 100% certain guarantee, isn't it? You cannot swear by anything greater. This is the oath that the Lord makes, and it cannot be broken. And I think the reason this verse really stands out as the center of this psalm, I believe, in many ways, and it is given here as a promise. It reminds us that the Lord's oath is a guarantee because it's speaking about the role of the chosen king, Messiah, here. And it's difficult because we see both before this verse and after this verse, it's speaking of a king, Messiah, and priestly acts. But it's saying something very different and quite shocking to the ears now of Israelites at this time. We're learning something crucial here about the office of this coming king. And we learn that in him the office of priest and king would be combined. Now, if you Israel, Israelite history, obviously these two offices were not combined. You had the Levites and then you had the, the kingly line, and they did not cross over. In fact, the king was restricted from involving himself in the duties of the priests, and we see some times where the king overstepped that in the Old Testament and it ended very badly for them. But in this coming king, he will be both a priest and a king, and we have this reference to this mystical character called Melchizedek. You may remember he shows up in Genesis chapter 14. He is a priest and a king. He is another person before the Levitical priesthood arose. He combined these two offices. And he was also a king of Salem that most people believe is early, early area of Jerusalem. So you can see the typology there. But he combines these two offices. Now the promise here that the Lord has guaranteed is that this combined priesthood and kingly uh, role is also going to be an eternal priesthood. This again was a standout difference to the Levitical priesthood that was hereditary and it got passed down. This here, this next time these two offices are combined in the Messiah, it will be forever. We see this promise again applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And this again confirms to us its messianic interpretation. Do you remember Hebrews chapter 7? It uses this verse, the author to Hebrews uses this whole passage, this whole psalm, to point out that the priesthood of Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And it makes the argument that it's superior for the very reason that it combines these two offices and it is eternal, of which the Levitical priesthood was not. So these arguments, again, are crucial to our theology and understanding of the Lord. Now this verse, like I said, is the centre of this psalm. And when we think of Christ as priest, that's a theme we're quite used to in the New Testament, in, in Christian circles. We often think of Christ as priest. 
And like I mentioned, when we do that, we tend to think of the cross, really, don't we? We move naturally towards the cross, and that's absolutely right to do that. Or, quite often, if we're going past the cross, we think about how is he operating as a priest today, and we think that he, he ever lives to make intercession for us. He has that priestly act of praying and interceding for the saints. Also true. However, this psalm is about an eschatological priestly warrior king, as I've said. And both the verses before it and the verses after it describe a king who's at war, a king-priest who is at war. And this gives us a different slant on the type of sacrifice that this priest is making at this time. It's absolutely true. His act of sacrifice was a priestly act. His act of intercession is a priestly act. But this is referring to a time in the future where he is still operating as priest. Some people seem to operate under the, the way that when he was on earth, he was a prophet. When he sacrificed himself, he was a priest. And now he's like a king. And that those three things run consecutively. They don't. They run all together all the time. He is a king, prophet, priest, and king. And we see here that as he comes back as a king, he still has work to do as a priest. And it's an eschatological work. That word means that it's something related to his final wrapping up of history. Let me read you the text where this comes from. Ezekiel 39, verse 17 to 20. We see the same period of time being talked about in this Bible. And we see uh, a sacrifice. But it is not a sacrifice of prayer. It is a sacrifice of God's enemies. Verse 17, as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird, to every beast of the field, assemble and come, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams, lambs, goats, bulls, all of the fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are glutted and drink blood until you are drunk. From my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you, you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all the men of war, declares the Lord. Now, of course, remember this is apocalyptic language and you might find... You know, there is hyperbole being used, but it is still relating to a, a very real period in history. And this is the time when the Lord comes back. Ezekiel 36, 37, 38 and 39 all describe the, the events leading up to the arrival of this coming king. All describe the time, as we, if we could say, when that until in this psalm is reached its point. And he says now... And, this, and he comes back. This is exactly the same. And this great sacrifice that we see of God's enemies here is exactly what Psalm 110 goes on to speak about in the next three verses. So let's read them. Verses 5, 6, and 7. Verse, uh, Psalm 110. It says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country, he will drink from the brook by the wayside and therefore he will lift up his head. So this is talking about the Messiah's victory over the nations. And look what it says in verse uh, five, in the day of his wrath. And the day of his wrath, this is a technical term. It's quite often written as day of the Lord. I believe these two terms relate to the same period of time. And before we get too squeamish, or a lot of people obviously when they read about death like this, we start asking a lot of moral or apologetic questions. I, I do understand that. But we need to understand the context of this time period to properly understand why it is talked about in such strong terms. The day of the Lord, 
is the final culmination of Earth's history for this present age. It is the birth pangs that bring to light the kingdom. You remember in Jesus and in Jewish literature, you'll find this all over the place. They, they speak of the birth pangs as pregnancy. And that, that's where the language comes from. We find this in the Olivet Discourse. And the idea is a woman going through labor has those very intense birth pangs as they get close to the baby being born. And then through that struggle, the baby is born and the birth is there and you're into the new era. The kingdom of God is related to the pregnancy uh, of a woman, as we see here. The birth pangs of the kingdom increase in intensity. This is what we're just reading about here at this final end of the age. And then ultimately it will give birth to the kingdom of God. That is what we have uh, going on at this time here. It's the day of the Lord, a time when people on the earth at that time are not innocent bystanders. So much has happened that lines have been drawn. People have taken their stand. They have either taken the mark of the beast. They have associated with everything that is against God. They have fallen for the lie. They have rejected Jesus at this time. And they are actually taking up arms, fighting against God's people, particularly trying to destroy the nation of Israel at, at this time. It is referred to as the campaign of Armageddon in popular literature. You always find this pattern in the scriptures. It's not just in the book of Revelation. All through the Old Testament prophets, you find a great global catastrophe involving judgment of the enemies of God, the birth pangs, and then you find the kingdom coming straight after that. You find that in every single eschatological text. Christ comes, this Messiah, warrior king, to vanquish the usurpers on the earth. And that is how they are talked of at this time. They are usurpers. Christ is the one who rules. He is the one that has the scepter that will go from Zion. He has right and dominion over this earth. And the book of Revelation is the book of the Bible that explains to us. You remember that verse in Revelation where it says, and now the kingdoms of this world have been transferred to the kingdom of our Lord. That is the until. That is when the Messiah comes, when he basically judges the usurpers. And yes, they are fighting against him at this time and they are destroyed and the kingdom comes. The Bible gives us a huge amount of information about this period of time. And like I said, all these eschatological texts speak of this same pattern. If you read Jesus, when he gives his own teaching, the Olivet Discourse, the, one of the, the most in-depth teachings on this, many people think that was a new sermon. Of course, it was in one sense because Jesus was giving it with his own authority. But what he does is exactly what the Old Testament prophets do. He outlines that same pattern of increasing global birth pangs leading to his coming and the eschatological kingdom. I want to just look a little bit deeper at this for a few moments. I want you to turn to Isaiah 24 with me, please. Isaiah 24 is perhaps one chapter where you get a complete summary again of the same pattern in the scriptures. Now, I know a lot of this, if you haven't heard it, your heads might be jumping around. There's a lot of information. I encourage you make a study of these texts. Don't make a study to try and figure out the chronology necessary. Make a study to understand what it is telling us about this warrior king. What is happening, what the kingdom is going to be like, why God has to come in judgment of his enemies at this time. And you'll learn a lot about Messiah revealed to you. Isaiah 24, the whole book of Isaiah speaks on this a lot. Isaiah 24 is one of these passages. I won't read the whole thing. I'm going to read the first five verses and then we'll jump to the end. Everything in the middle is sort of a poetic, apocalyptic description of the events we've just been talking about. 
But it starts off like this. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. Basically what's that saying is all people at this time, it doesn't matter what you're like, you're all in the same boat. The earth will be completely laid waste, completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is polluted by its inhabitants, for they have transgressed laws, violated statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Notice why this is happening, because people have sinned. Make no mistake, this is a judgment on sinful humanity at the end of history for those who have made a positive decision to reject and actually oppose the Lord at this time. This is the day of the Lord. Quite commonly, you'll hear this period referred to as the tribulation period, and they get that from the book of Jeremiah. Now look down at the end of this chapter of Isaiah, verse 21. We see this pattern emerge. So it will happen in that day. Which day? The same one we read about in the psalm, in the day of his wrath, the day of the Lord. That the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign from where? Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. So it says, in that day, this tells us that it's referring to the same day of the wrath that Psalm 110 mentions. Notice, what is going on here? Why do we read these such strong graphic descriptions of what is happening? Two things are listed here. He is punishing the host of heaven. Who are the host of heaven? These are the spiritual principalities and powers that are behind all of these things. This is Satan. This is his demons. This is all of those spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places that are given almost free reign in this final period of history until the warrior king comes to deal with them and you find that here happening and then it also says and the kings of the earth who are they these are basically the earthly followers of these principalities at this time those who have taken the mark of the beast those who are rejecting jesus christ or persecuting his people it says they will be imprisoned for a time and then they will be judged now it if you read a lot in eschatological material, you may notice that, that that little summary in Isaiah sounds very similar to the entire book of Revelation. The patterns are almost identical throughout the book of Revelation, and it sounds very similar because that is basically what the Revelation is explaining. The apocalypsis, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, is this coming Messiah King, and it is explaining how he transfers the dominion back to his, himself at this time. Now, to notice the parallels, I want to just compare them side by side for you. I will read them for you. You won't need to be turning there. This is a comparison of Isaiah 24 and Revelation 19 and 20, because I find this to be very instructive. What I'm trying to show you is just how pivotal this theme is to understanding this massive portion uh, of eschatology of the Bible. And why do we need to do that? Because it's not just something that we need to focus on if we have an interest in that. We need to do it because right in the very first sermon of the church, the Apostle Peter thought that this text was one that he needed to use, and it's this text that speaks about it. It was there from the very first day of the church, and therefore it should be there until the very last day of the church. And that's why we're looking at it. So you'll notice it says, punish the host of heaven in Isaiah. In Revelation, it says this, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. That is the ultimate host of heaven, isn't it? 
Verse 21 in Isaiah, it says the kings of the earth below. Now you may notice kings of the earth is a phrase that you will find again and again and again in Revelation. 1919, it talks of the kings of the earth or they that dwell on the earth, always speaking negatively of these people who are following the principalities of Satan. The kings of the earth and their armies and those who follow them. In verse 22 of Isaiah, it says they will be confined to a dungeon. In Revelation 19, it says that he took hold of them, he threw him into the abyss, he closed it, and he put his seal on it. Isaiah says they will be confined to a dungeon, but after many days, they will be punished. And then in Revelation, we find that they are confined in a dungeon, and then we have an actual time period for the many days. It says after the thousand years were completed, they were loosed a little while, and they were judged. After many days they will be punished. When the thousand years are completed in Revelation, Satan will be released from his prison. The devil who was deceived then was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. We have a bit more detail in Revelation, but you'll notice that these things exactly match up event for event, pattern for pattern. You'll find this all the way through these portions of text. And then look at that last verse in 23 of Isaiah. It says, The moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Now, I believe it says Mount Zion in Jerusalem specifically to counteract, I would say, a lot of the arguments that come that this is just referring to the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Because that's one way that people make these texts not refer to the actual earth. They say that it's just now spiritual referring to the, the heavenly Jerusalem. There's a minor truth in what they're saying. There is a heavenly Jerusalem in that sense. But this is not it. This says Mount Zion in Jerusalem and it's a very geographical location that it's talking about here. His glory will be before his elders. It's the same as in Psalm 110. From Zion, his scepter will rule in Jerusalem. The king comes to destroy those who rebel against him, judge the earth for its wickedness, and then he sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem. You find this same pattern in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, where it actually says, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And then it says, and then the Lord will be king over all the earth. His name shall be one, the only one. There'll be no doubt when his kingdom comes who is the rightful heir of this world. You see, this is why there is such a battle over Jerusalem and why there always has been. They call it the controversy of Zion in the scriptures. And it will be there until the king is ruling from Jerusalem. Yes, it will be on a glorified earth. It will be very different to what we know, to what we see now. There's no point looking at present geopolitical situation and trying to decide which side you're on. You're, you're not going to get there. You need to use the scriptures to understand this. Now let's go back to Psalm 110. That was a bit of a digression, but it's all very much related to this text. You'll notice the final verse, it says, he will drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. It almost seems like a very anticlimactic scenario to what he's just been giving us, this coming king who's going to judge the, judge the world. The idea of this is that if you could think of ancient Near Eastern warfare, of the act of a, a tough battle on the ground, many, you know, you've been fighting for a long time, and then you have the victorious king, he walks over to a stream, bends down and just refreshes himself. That's the idea that you have here. This is the picture being presented to us in, in symbolic language here. The Lord is refreshed when the kingdom starts. And this is the end of the prophecy of the, the priestly warrior king. I find this text, these sort of scriptures just incredible to wrap your head around and they will open up the Bible to you in many ways. You don't want to go into this in a sensational way, 
seeking down all these different paths that many people who are into prophecy get into. But you do need to understand that prophecy reveals to us more about Jesus Christ. This is one very crucial element. It's the time when he brings justice to the world, when all those people who have done things that everyone thinks is going to get away with them, they do not get away with them. It ushers in his kingdom reign. This is what the birth pangs are leading up to. And this is the day that we look forward to because we are heirs with Christ. Some of the blessings that we have in the gospel is that we are promised to rule and reign with him in this kingdom. Now, what that means, it's almost impossible to really imagine. But ultimately, like those armies who followed the Lord, we're there voluntarily. We're wearing priestly robes and we do whatever the master says. That's our service to the Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.